0: I'm Siham Cyrene, and you are here for better conversations.
1: Retention is key. And if you're a leader, you live and die by your team. And if people are leaving, um, that's partially on you, right? Like, it's not all under your control. Obviously, there's outside factors. But if people are leaving, people don't leave bad companies. They leave bad managers. People don't stick around for good companies. They stick around for good managers or good leaders. So I'm trying to do that every day, but it's very, very tough. It is, you know, you're, you're working from home. I've got my own distractions here. Everybody's got their own distractions. So again, back to the whole point of this topic here today, having good conversations at, at, at nearly every opportunity, even if it's a five-minute conversation, it makes a difference. It could make a big, big difference in someone's work or personal life. While
0: we're gifted with speech, conversations really good conversations don't happen as much as we'd like. In this podcast, my guests and I deep dive into all the corners of what makes a conversation awkward and uncomfortable or warming and memorable. Hello, my guest today is Jason Ring. He's head of sales in emerging companies at Global Shares. Welcome, Jason.
1: Great to be on. My pleasure.
0: Lovely to have you here. So a little bit about you. You spent a decade in hyper growth cybersecurity companies, helping them build their global go to market strategies and achieve unicorn status. Global Shares, an equity compensation company, so everything to do with shares, brought you on a year ago to help drive their next stage of growth, particularly in their SaaS business. So that means you work directly with founding teams of high growth startups, their legal advisors and their VC investors for three really important reasons. One, to make sure that the company ownership is tracked. Two, that our employees have access to their share options. And we're going to get into a lot of this a little bit later because I'm really curious about how you make this uh, land for people. And three, obviously, uh, shareholders need to have full transparency into the value of their investment. Now, to do those things really well, you've got to have a pretty good knowledge or insight into the challenges of startups, scale-ups and founders. And you've got to be really good at conversations. And when you and I spoke recently, it was like we'd known each other for a while, which we haven't, but conversation was easy. Um, And I think we spoke for much longer than we planned. Um, But let's back up a little bit and get some background on you. Can you tell us a bit about how you gained your firsthand knowledge of pre-IPO startups?
1: Yeah, first of all I I completely agree with you. Uh, I think when we when we spoke I think the call might have been in for for 10 minutes and maybe it was my fault or whatever but we definitely spoke for a lot longer. Um so that was great. Just to go on to a bit about the the pre-IPO startups. I think the the very first my my first ever job was selling car tires uh when I was 15, 16 and um I learned firsthand that was my first experience with with customers and Negotiating and I suppose active listening, as we say, and it was quite a quite a harsh lesson, I would say because uh, you're you're negotiating quite minimal things with with different people um but as i as I progressed through, I was lucky enough to really learn my craft and and work with some amazing leaders over the years um I started out in, in e m c and um obviously they they kind of put you through uh, rigorous training and they kind of talk to you about. How do you effectively manage negotiations? And how do you effectively manage your pipeline and your forecasting and your business? Um, And when I moved on from EMC, I moved into cybersecurity space where I spent uh, the best part of of a decade working with um, pre and post IPO companies. Um, But in the latter kind of four or five years, all pre IPO companies that were starting out, uh, trying to crack the European and global market, going to market with, New technologies that nobody had ever spoken about. Um, I kind of felt like an evangelist uh, at most times because I was talking about things like uh, zero-day threats and signatureless technology, and you know, I was dealing with CISOs and CFOs and CTOs that it was all new to them because it was a new a new area. So I really needed to be effective in how I came across. I needed to be able to articulate uh, really well, um, not like how to sell a product, but how to solve a problem. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I, that, that just happens with throwing yourself into it, into the deep end and just having conversations and improving on that and self-reflection. So I think for me over the years, I've taken a lot on board, um, stuff that I, that I do really well, stuff that I do that's not so well and try to, to always improve. But I, I think I've been very, very lucky, uh, the career I've had so far and how we've got there and definitely having good conversations has helped me. I I really think it's been critical
0: yeah um and I imagine selling car tires is um is gives you an incredible grounding in because the the reactions of people are kind of pretty instant um as to whether they want to buy don't want to buy need to buy um and 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 then choice of what they're buying um you're really getting quite personal in in terms of preferences right
1: or oh, like I would would have someone come to, uh, you know, come to the window and scream and shout at me for 20 cents because the tire is 20 cent more expensive than the person on the road. And 20 cent to them is everything in their business because they're an entrepreneur. They they would have a small business. And that was like, you know, I was 15. I, I didn't have a clue, to be honest. I was, you know, trying to just start out in life, um, you know, I, I haven't come from a, you know, a, a wealthy background. Um, my parents, and I know we'll touch on this later, but my, my parents have, uh, you know, always been hardworking people. Um, so I've got a deep appreciation for, you know, everything in, in life has a value. I take nothing for granted. I work hard for pretty much everything. Um, and and I think that really started by, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, starting at work at a, a young age just to really get out there and experience life. And like, you know, uh, I moved to the UK when I was 17 uh, to do osteopathic medicine. So I, I had never kind of really been outside of Ireland. Um, and, you know, I done physiotherapy and the job market at the time was, wasn't was great. So I ended up traveling over and back for near four and a half years from Ireland to the UK uh, using the job that I had selling car tires to pay for my education in, in medical school which, wow. as you're probably aware in the UK, uh, is quite expensive. And I, I had no grants because I wasn't recognized under the, the, the UCAS scheme because I was an Irish citizen. And because I was studying in the UK, I wasn't allowed to get any Irish uh, relief either. So I was pretty much working five days a week in, in Ireland in Cork. I would get on a flight Friday night. I would fly over to college Uh, I'd pretty much sleep in, I I was lucky that the Irish contingent in the UK is so big because people were putting me up. I was sleeping on their couch uh, uh, Saturdays and Sundays and I'd get back on a flight on Monday morning from Stansted on a Ryanair flight at 6am and I'd, uh, yeah, I'd I'd get back home and I'd go straight into work for 8am. So I've always worked hard and I, I don't want that to come across as if I'm, you know, some amazing person that, you know, everybody works hard, but I have an appreciation for the effort needed to put in for it, because, you know, and I think that's important um, in life in general.
0: Well, it, it's still impressive. I mean, you may you may wish to downplay it, but um, but to have that kind of stick at ability, as my family would say, um, is um, is is remarkable. It teaches you a lot as well, for sure. So let's talk about conversations then. What does a conversation, a really good one, um, what's that look like? What's it feel like to you?
1: I, I think for me a really good conversation starts with not talking i know that sounds silly but i think active listening uh is is really really important and it's something that i actually struggled with for many years because i'm such a chatty person and i'm very talkative and i just want to have a good conversation with people but early on i was probably talking too much um some will argue i still talk too much <laughs> <laughs> including my wife probably but I, I learned over the years, especially, so, so if you think of the, the jobs that, that, uh, that I had, right? I was in board level meetings talking to CISOs, uh, legal counsel, CFOs, CEOs about cyber threats to their business and how if they were hacked, the effect it would have on their, their reputation, their business and everything like that. And I needed to really understand their business first of all. So before I'd ever walk into a conversation, I had an end goal in mind. Okay, what do I want to achieve in this meeting? or in this call, or whatever it is, uh, what does the other person that's on the other end of the call or on the other, across the table from me, what are they looking to achieve? And I need to understand that because if I go in there with my own agenda and I only care about myself and it's all self-actualization and I'm brilliant and our product's great and you need to buy it, and none of what I'm saying relates to the person across the table, they're going to stop listening straight away and they'll probably be looking to the sky or, you know, they'll probably think about how fast can I get this guy off this call or out of this meeting room? So I think, you know, having an appreciation for what the other person wants is critical. Having an end goal in mind is critical uh, and actively listening is critical. Um, and I think if, if you do them, uh, you're on the way to a, a pretty good conversation
0: so true. And I'm thinking about, so the work that you do now, what is it that, you know, what is that conversation? What does it look like? I mean, what, what gets discussed? How do you communicate to founders that, that, um, you know, keeping track of shares is just as important as, um, if not more, uh, at at certain times than, um, you know, as, as, Operationally being efficient.
1: Yeah, I think I, I think for for startups, it, it's a challenge in itself. That I, I don't think the pandemic itself, uh, you know, has helped with having better conversations. Because I think the pivot overnight between like VCs and startups coming in and having that face to face contact, and and you know, you have your pitch deck, and you you can really articulate it. Face to face, and you know the VC or the investor can get a really good sense of the person because they can see them. They can look at their manner, how they carry themselves, how passionate they are about what they're talking about, and that's very hard to replicate on a Zoom call or online. Um, you know, you just can't replicate that. So I think the challenge at the moment for for founders is to make sure that they do everything they can to articulate their passion, their vision, and their business. Uh, without actually ever being in front of someone, um, and in, in global shares, we've done a whole bunch of research about like what investors are looking for now, uh, post COVID or during COVID, how they invest in companies, and that all starts with you need to understand your business. Uh, you need to understand, you know, the the equity structure in your company. You need to understand the valuation of your company. You need to understand. What happens if someone leaves that's already got shares and and where does that go and how does that trickle down? What happens if someone invests in your company today? What do they get? What do you get? What is the knock-on effect of that? Um, There's so many questions and I'm sure we'll go through them here today uh, with some of them, but there's just a lot to do and I think the challenge for for founders at the moment um, is they need to do their homework on the investors. I was on a really, really interesting uh, webinar uh, probably around October time with a lady who has gone out and set up her own fund. And she mentioned that one of the things was that was disappointing to her is a VC will do a whole bunch of work uh, prospecting a prospective client or portfolio company. They go in and they look at their cash flow, their growth, uh, the market segment, the growth against competitors, all those things. And what they found was the founders or startups weren't doing the same due diligence on the VCs what does the VC stand for? What's their portfolio? How involved did they get in the company? Are they mentors or are they just looking to cash in? And that really kind of did, was a disappointment for her, but she wants to be held accountable by the founders and startups. And I think that that was actually encouraging for me because it meant that VCs want to be held accountable and you can ask tough questions to them, but you, you know you need to do the prep and figure out what those questions are for you.
0: That's um, really interesting because yes, I've witnessed it, um, but it also rings true in terms of many founders are sort of can get excited about any VC being interested in them. Um, You know, they perhaps because they haven't got, you know, time to kind of look up or, um, or catch a breath, right? That these things are kind of low on their mind. I guess the question to you is how receptive do you find founders are in opening up that conversation about, I mean, we're not even talking at this point about how, you know, their shares. We're talking about the investment um, and the interest in them.
1: I think actually I've been pleasantly surprised how open everybody is so like, you know, in, in my role uh, and global shares as a company, uh, what we want to do is tighten that entire global ecosystem up. So, uh, you know, we're in, uh, I don't know how many countries we have offices in, but we have uh, companies that work with us in over 100 uh, countries, right? And each language is different. Culturally, it's different. So, the way I'll work with a founder or speak to a VC in, let's say, the UK, is totally different the way you're going to have a conversation with someone from Japan or China or France, or Germany, because it's just different culture. But what I've been pleasantly surprised by is that everyone's open. And I don't know if it's because of COVID and like people just want to have conversations. And, you know, I think it's funny because I've been in sales quite a long time and uh, I've always liked picking up the phone and having a a conversation with someone. If I can do that over email, I will. Um, And I think that was definitely falling away. I think the use of the phone was falling away for years. Social selling was building up. And I'm kind of seeing the flip of it now again, I think people are so isolated. And I, I'm again, I'm, I keep founders in mind here for your question. I think they're so isolated, they're at home, they can't be in front of anyone, they can't physically see anyone, that you just would, would, are happy to talk to people and open up. Um, and I find that with the founders as well. And I also find that with the law firms and the VCs and employees, uh, you know, accelerator program managers, whoever it is, uh, outside counsel, they, they all understand the challenge especially in this day and age now. And I I think I've been really, really pleasantly surprised by how easy it has been to have those conversations. They're difficult conversations to have, like, as you can appreciate, you're talking about someone's business, their equity, the value, everything that really attaches themselves to their life and their livelihood. Um, But I've been pleasantly surprised how easy that has been so far.
0: Yeah, well, two really interesting things there. So I'm, I'm wondering whether... Because um, of the scarcity of hearing a, another human voice, and the fact that it you the you haven't got body language as much, even if you're on a video call, you've got a little less, quite substantially less body language to read off, and whether the very nature of an online call or a video call means that I wonder whether the online nature. Of it and the fact that we're missing some data. And so we are maybe a little bit more open, assuming, you know, the initial connection, the initial impression is a good one. Um, and you get a sense of, yeah, okay, I can talk to this person because conversations over the phone tend to be more intimate. And I, and, and I'll give you an example. So some people, some of my clients I coach, um, by phone that's always been the case for them. And um, and some people ask, well, can you, you know, is, is that as good a conversation as in-person or, or video? And my answer is, um, it is, it, but for slightly different reasons. Um, there's an element of you're, you actually are listening and tuning in to uh, a much greater level to intonation and tone and language and that kind of stuff. And um, because that's all we've got um and actually it makes for quite an intimate conversation and the silences are much more profound so i'm just wondering whether you find that in the conversations that you have whether there's a, an ability to get to the heart of the matter much more quickly than maybe in person
1: yeah i like i think that's a it's a really interesting question and observation because uh, you know i think um when you hear someone else's voice on the other end of the phone so me and you are talking here and subconsciously my mind um, and your mind are both registering an emotional reaction based on the pitch of the tone the conversation and i think you know nothing will substitute for for that emotional connection you get by having a good conversation or well by 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 having a conversation the the good part of the conversation comes to come what i was talking about earlier which is You need to do preparation so that the conversation actually flows. You actually have an idea of where you want it to go. So to your point, getting to the the heart of the matter quicker. um, Absolutely, both people need to have an openness and uh, obviously need to kind of understand why they're on the call. But the end goal in mind, and I think over the years, you know, why I've had success People just ask me, well, how did you manage to close that deal? Or how did you manage to sign that customer? Or how did you get into that account and all that? And I'm like, absolutely no secrets. It's not magic. I just had a good conversation with someone. I, I, you know, same, same with the way me and you, you know, when we connected first, pick up the phone and just have a chat with someone and understand why you're doing it. And I think if you go into uh, any conversation like that, I think you'll end up having that kind of emotional connection um, subconsciously, definitely. And, and that leads to a better relationship, be it with a customer or just a, a colleague or someone that you've, you know, you're opening your network um, versus uh, sometimes face-to-face. I honestly, my my core strength I would have taught over the years was that face-to-face because in previous jobs for me, it was meeting customers face-to-face in high-pressured meetings. You're talking about sensitive topics. Uh, you're typically talking with the C-level executives. And, that's you front and center in a boardroom, either doing a presentation or talking about a potential breach of a company or they've been hacked or their data's out there and the reputational damage or, um, you know, trying to save a company from oblivion for whatever reason. And that tended to be face-to-face because the conversation needed to be. Um, And my strength, I thought, was always that, that I could get in front of someone and read the room really well because, uh, you know, yourself, there is different personas People pitch differently when they're talking. Uh, you've got kind of the upfront, kind of blunt, straight to the point. I don't care about anything else. I just want the facts. Versus someone that wants to kind of have a bit more of a, well, what are you about? And who are you? So I've I've kind of felt two two areas to my 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 career have been obviously having a conversation on the phone like this, but also that face to face. And I'm sure I know for a fact a lot of my ex colleagues that have been brilliant face to face are probably struggling with the need of uh, everything moving to online because they haven't had to do that for years. Um, So I think always refining your ability to pick up the phone allows you to kind of keep on top of your game because at the moment, the phone and email and social, that's it. There is no face-to-face. And if you can't do that, how are you going to do your business?
0: And and I think the other thing, Jason, is people finding themselves working from home and it's not, if you're a social person and if you are in sales and and you thrive off and feed off the energy of other people, that must be kind of hard to be at home and having to adapt and feeling like you're missing that buzz of people around you. So you've got to overcome that piece first and, and then also pick up the phone.
1: I'm a very positive person by nature um, I'm sure sometimes they don't come across that way because it can be a bit cranky, obviously. But I'm, I always try to put a positive spin on, on anything and, and that's just kind of my nature. And, you know, when the pandemic first hit, like nobody really knew anything about it. Like, will it be here for a couple of weeks? Is it going to be here forever? You know, what does that mean for everything? And everyone's automatically goes into that kind of uh, fight flight piece about, is it going to be my job, will it, income and everything? And what I found at the, the start of kind of really getting into working from home was I needed to be more like a psychologist than uh, like a manager. And what I mean, meant by that is like, I've had people that, you know, they work from home, they don't have an office environment, they don't have the luxury of having a built in home office. Uh, They have family members that live, uh, you know, at home, maybe four or five kids, in some cases, Uh, they get up in the morning, they're in their bedroom, they're going down for their breakfast, they come back to their bedroom, they do eight hours work, they go might go downstairs again to watch a, an hour's TV, have dinner, and then they're going back to bed. So they're literally spending nearly 22, 23 hours of a day in one room. And psychologically, that's just really tough. And I, you know, for me, the conversations that I've tried to have um and that I've found myself having is more on a personal basis, is how are people feeling? What what's your environment? I need to know as a leader your environment? Like, where are you working? Because there might be a whole bunch of challenges that I don't know exist. And all I'm talking about is all your call stats, your emails, or the deals, or pipeline, or forecasting. And in the background, that person could have so many other challenges. And obviously, there's a, a sensitive line that you have to balance between crossing into someone's personal life versus business. But I found that it's really important to have conversations about the people and that if I do that really well, and you know, if everyone feels looked after and not pressured in that regard, the business side of it works really well. And you know, throughout this pandemic, we I've hired uh, over twenty plus people, most of them remotely. Some of them I've never met, and they've all been fantastic. They've all hit the ground running. They've all, you know, really enjoyed working. And that comes down to a lot of conversations. Uh, it also comes down to the fact that Global Shares have done, in fairness, an amazing job with pivoting from the office to remote. Um, like the HR team here have obviously gone above and beyond to, to get people in. And to, you know, the CEO is a really big advocate of it. So it's by no means my achievement. But what I focused on is I need to have good conversations with the teams every day. And I have different teams in different regions. I have different teams that do different things, different metrics, different focuses. So I also need to pivot that conversation to be different on every call. So before we joined today, I've probably had 10 calls. Each of them are different with different people. And I need to structure my conversation so I can articulate the end goal in mind again.
0: Well, that's um, brilliant to hear, Jason. And so uh, an initial question, I got lots in this space, obviously, but uh, an initial question, have you ever had when you've asked someone um, a question that may be personal? Um, about their space and working environments and pressures and so on, have you ever had someone say actually i don 't want to talk about that about that with you
1: um, uh, definitely, uh, and I think not because they didn 't want to talk about it, but I think just there and there and at that time they just didn't want they just wanted to be left alone and clear their mind. I think fortunately for me i 'm very open and transparent about like like you know I talk about my kids and my my own environment at home and you know what I want to achieve in global shares for example and in my career and how driven I am. So I open up myself personally to other people as well to build not just working relationships but friendships. And you know I've done that all my career. You know, I'm lucky like you know if you go into my LinkedIn profile for example, I I have, you know, customer references, ex-colleagues, current colleagues and I don't say that to kind of like amplify, oh, I'm fantastic. It's based on, I I. I try to be people's friend and that's not easy, right? And like, you can't, you can't like if a friendship's not going to work, it's not going to work, right? You can't force something to happen. But when I've asked those personal questions, typically people understand why I'm asking it because they know I'm genuinely trying to help them and they've been very receptive and open to it. But definitely not entirely like, you know, it's not a hundred percent success rate when I ask someone how they're getting on, but it's your job as a leader to find that out. However, you do that, maybe it's observations on someone's working. Like if someone has been really successful for eight months and then all of a sudden it drops off a cliff, there's a reason for that. And it mightn't be that they've become bad at their job overnight, it might be because something's happening outside of the environment that they're currently in, and you need to figure that out. And the challenge with COVID has been for salespeople, um, you know, when you build an inside sales team, for example, or you're building out a, a sales uh, office everybody's in the office, you can read everyone, you bounce off everyone, everyone's sitting next to each other. I can see if someone's having a tough day, I can hear in the way that they're working, if they just need an arm around their shoulder, or maybe if they need a, you know, a bit of a a pick me up. And you don't get that at home now. You don't get that. uh, Like I'll have a Zoom call. Great, might be it for an hour. And then I might talk to that person again or hear or see that person for five hours because they're doing their work and I'm doing other things. And what's happening in those five hours? Are they having a good day? Are they stressed out? Are they, you know, enjoying work? Do they feel valued? And that's what I try to focus on. Uh, And that kind of goes back to what I suppose, sometimes you feel more like a a psychologist or a therapist than a leader. But I think that's all part of life. I think that's uh, emotional intelligence. Isn't that what they call it? You know, you have to have, as a leader, Mm. emotional intelligence.
0: Well, and the reason I ask that, Jason, uh, you know, it warms my heart to hear that. But the reason I ask it is, because I think a lot of people wonder how personal can I be, mm. especially, Absolutely. uh, in, you know, as everyone switched to working remotely. Um, it's the question I hear a lot is, well, I don't want to intrude. I don't want to, I don't want to come across as nosy and. Sometimes this is with people who have members of their team who are older than them. And so, you know, they're a little bit hesitant to kind of step into a space because they don't want it to seem patronizing or, you know, um, um, with an ulterior motive. They're just, but they don't have either the confidence or the, the comfort in just as you talk, as you sort of describe it, being a friend to people. And these are people that you work with. Why can't, you know, it's absolutely fine to to have a friendship with people. They're not just co-workers.
1: Think of it, like I spend more time every day uh, talking to people in work than talking to my family. And my family are my friends. Like I love my wife, I love my kids. So shouldn't I try to put the same amount of effort into getting to know the people I work with because I spend more time every day with them. And I'm sure over the lifetime, if you work from whatever, say 15 to 65, sorry, that's quite a long time. And if you add up all the hours you're speaking to people you work with or your clients or your partners, that's a lot of time for you to be talking to people. And, you know, they're your friends, right? You need to be building those personal relationships or even just really good, solid professional relationships. Um, like you know, not everyone needs to be invited to your wedding or you know, <laughs> but like pick up the phone, have a chat. Hey, how are you? Like I've I've not spoken to some colleague, ex colleagues for years. And, you know, if I see a post on LinkedIn, for example, or if I, you know, come across them in an interview, it's like, Oh, hey, how have you been? Great to catch up with you, you know. How's how the kids and how's you oh, like, oh Jason, how's Eliza? You know, ask about my daughter. And that's great because automatically I'm just having a conversation with them. Um and I think, you know, I've learned that by having really good leaders and also really bad leaders. Um, I've had people that I've worked for and with that have really, you know, led by example and tried to have uh, visibility into the, the entire picture, not just focusing on the job at hand, but everything that affects the job. Because if you work on everything that affects the job, the job looks after itself. Magic, you know, if you just focus on the job and you do nothing else, and then you're trying to figure out, oh, my metrics are down, oh, what the hell's happening here? You're missing the picture. But I have had at managers like that over the years and I've worked um for people over the years where they just it's not their style. They're 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 very um straight. They're corporate, I suppose not not corporate, but they just have a you know very um linear focus. That's it. They just want to talk about the job, the task at hand, and that's it. And that works for some people, but if I look at the two management styles I've worked uh, under and I suppose what I'm trying to bring the former over the latter, uh has a a productivity, I would say, tenfold just on the retention. Like, thankfully, everybody that I've hired during COVID, they're all here. They've all passed a probation. They love working here. Uh, Retention is key. And if you're a leader, you live and die by your team. And if people are leaving, um, that's partially on you, right? Like, it's not all under your control. Obviously, there's outside factors. But if people are leaving, people don't leave bad companies. They leave bad managers. People don't stick around for good companies. They stick around for good managers or good leaders, so I'm trying to do that every day, but it's very, very tough. It is, you know, you're, you're working from home. I've got my own distractions here. Everybody's got their own distractions. So again, back to the whole point of this topic here today, having good conversations at, at, at nearly every opportunity, even if it's a five minute conversation, it makes a difference. It could make a big, big difference in someone's work or personal life.
0: And I'm just doing a bit of maths here. So you said that you'd had 10 conversations before um, we got online. Um, So uh, we started at midday. You... Talk me through that. What was that? Some were short conversations, some were longer. And what time did you start? I mean, and and I'm I'm asking because you know I can hear the 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 brain ticking in in listeners going. Well, how do you know? What would you fit in, and what would that look like in the morning? How do you get ten calls in? Uh,
1: ten calls. Sometimes I do ten calls in an hour. <laughs> it's the it's the joys of working <laughs> in a high-growth SaaS company. Um, but look. The mixture of you have structured calls that are scheduled in your diary. You have calls that you want to make because there's something that you have to follow up on. Maybe that has been sitting there that you've been procrastinating on or that, you know, you just need to get to. And then you have a whole bunch of stuff as a manager, as a leader, that just comes up out of the blue and someone will ring you and you're in the middle of something else and you've got your calendar blocked out and, you know, you, you need to pick up the phone. So the challenge that I've had is I want to make sure that I'm there for everybody, but I also need to make sure to understand that I can't always be there all the time for everybody because you know what? I'll get nothing done. Um, So I need to, first of all, the things that have to be a priority have to be done. I have to block that time out. You know, if I, like, so this morning, seven o'clock I, I was up, I had two hours of uh, calls with uh, some partners, law firms, VCs in different regions. Um, I, I kind of had, obviously, my prep done on, What I wanted to do and the agenda for the call. So they went really, really smooth. And you know, the the calls were great, thankfully. And then you have, you know, you're kind of hitting nine o'clock where, you know, the the, the normal day, and I would say the normal day works, but actually nowadays, I don't think anyone works nine to five. You know, you might work 10 to 10 or seven to seven or whatever it is. Um, And those calls, um, you know, someone might ring you and you're like, oh, hey, I've got a question. And you're like, okay, cool. Like, let's go through it. But what are you trying to achieve? So again, the end goal in mind, and if the end goal is a complex one, will we even get to it on this call? If we won't, let's say okay, we need to probably schedule in an actual proper call or meeting to go through it because we're we're just going to waste our time here because we're not going to get to the to the topic, and it's going to be a, an unproductive conversation. Or if it's something that can be of value, I think we can you know trash through. So some people had questions this morning about uh, forecasting or CRMs or reports or something they saw online or a partner or um, how to respond to uh, an email they got. Uh, and those are all kind of very small, short things that you can um, pick up on. The, the thing that I found over the years is that I much prefer to answer a question over a call and a conversation than on an email if I can. Because um, emails can be misinterpreted. The tone of a, an email can sometimes come across completely wrong. You can tend to get into what I called email insomnia, where you go back and forth for like forever and you still don't answer the question you still don't get to the, the end goal so sometimes the calls i put in today that were ad hoc were at my request where i got a, an email in or a message on teams or whatever and i said look best that we just jump on and go through it and you know we got to the the answer in 60 seconds instead of probably what well, would have taken me 20 minutes over on an email and also again think of the the, the the emotional side of it like if they if i haven't spoken to that person for you know five six hours Two minutes for them to, for us to kind of hear each other's voice. And so, oh, hey, how are you? Let's chat is important. So I think you also have to weigh up how engaged are you with each member of your team? And, you know, are you giving them equal amount of uh, air and voice time versus not doing that? But that's hard. It is tough. It is like, you know, uh, uh, you know, some days I, I am really tired. A lot of my friends do not understand what I do. They they make a joke about, um, there's an ongoing joke over the years that they think I'm a transponster. So if you've ever met, watched friends and people are trying to guess what Chandler Bing does, they're like, oh, he's a transponster. Because I will be physically some days really, really drained from the job. It's, like it's been, you know, seven to seven or, you know, it could be some 16 hour days sometimes. And people were like, how are you, you know, how are you tired? How are you wrecked? Sure, your job is just, you're on the phone or you're in front of a laptop. And I'm like, that's just, do my job for a week. Like do it and understand if you want to do that job really well and have all these conversations and try to be the best person you can, that's really, really tough. And it really requires a lot of energy, a lot of focus, a lot of structure. So when people make that joke, well, my friends, obviously, sometimes I I kind of get a go, oh, I'd love for you to just sit down for a week and just do this and come back to me. Because I think there's the an undervalued or underestimated uh, kind of logic around how tough this can be for people.
0: Well, and and, and as I'm listening to you, I, I can hear really strongly that it's important for you that you know where everyone is at, uh, that you are being as supportive as you can be. And a question I have is, do you, yes, it's tiring, and I'm, you know, at the pace that you're talking about and the number of calls that you put in, um, you know, that's, that's a high put through. Do you gain energy from any of your conversations?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh God. Um, I think there's nothing more invigorating. So for example, yesterday, I think it was about six o'clock. Uh, one of the the new people we hired only two weeks ago, Uh, they're in sales development and they booked a meeting and they rang me and they were ecstatic. They were like, Hey, just wanted to let you know I got a response from someone. And that was it. That was there. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, and like the thing for me is I've done their job. I I know how tough it is. And this person's in here two weeks and getting those quick wins and them feeling that they could come to me and say, hey, look, it's great, isn't it? And I'm like, oh, that really, like it put, it, it made me feel like all of the hard work that I put in is not, go, it doesn't go to waste. And like, you know, All the conversations you have will never have a tangible output and you won't be able to say, ah, the conversation I had there at Wednesday at one o'clock with that person resulted in this. That won't always happen. But it will like, you know, there there is a full circle, like things will come back around. And I always look at every opportunity to not just get that from people, but hey, I'm a leader. I need to give that to people as well. So even back to your point about, um, it's, it's important for me to understand where, they, where everybody else is at, it's also really critical for them to understand where I'm at. And I'm very open with, you know, what I want to achieve here, the you know, in global shares or in my career, like what drives me? And can they, like people relate to that? Like people go, ah, oh, like I really like that because his values are the same as mine and we're trying to achieve the same thing and we're in it together. So obviously, you know, you're not going to divulge everything in your life because that, that's, you know, you be there forever. Like, could be like uh, Dr. Phil or something, but you know, it's that two-way piece. Everyone needs to understand where everyone's at. And again, that all comes back to the conversations you have, it really does. But I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be where I am today. And obviously you can, you can hear on the phone here, like I am a very passionate person. Uh, I, I, I really care about this. Um, but I wouldn't be like this if I didn't have a good team around me and people that feed me as well and they, 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 they make me have the passion.
0: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this.
2: Better conversations. We all want to have them at work. Have you ever felt dread about an upcoming chat with a colleague you needed to have? Or had that sinking feeling when that meeting didn't go as well as you hoped? When we can provide a safe space in conversation, the other person feels able to open up without fear. As leaders, part of helping our team do their job effectively is to motivate and guide our people to deliver on their goals. And when we have successful conversations, we become more influential, encourage deeper collaborations, and foster true connection at work. Did you know it's the number one skill that sets the top leaders apart from the rest? That's why we've created a 12-week online course hosted by executive coach C. Herm Cyrene helping you to navigate those tough conversations with skill and compassion. Enroll today at leaderswhocoach.today.
0: I've enjoyed the conversation so far, Jason. And um, I would just think, you know, if I was a member of your team, I, I would... Strongly be feeling that connection with you as to, you know, your interest in me succeeding, but also, you know, having uh, time, making time for um, getting my head clear and getting my head straight um, if I was stuck at any point. But what are you rubbish at in conversation?
1: Yeah. Oh God. Um, okay. <laughs> I was, I made a, I made a joke earlier offline about how long is the podcast when you ask me uh, how, what I'm about. I think, yeah, uh, I, I, and I think it's kind of, it may come across here on this, but obviously I, I'm a talkative person. I'm, I'm an outgoing person. Uh, that is a strength, but it's also a weakness. And over the years, if I look at my, it's funny, if I look back at my, my primary school uh, report cards that my mother still has laminated by the way I don't know why she does Yay. but uh, I, I think it must, I, I was trying to think is that an Irish thing where your mother's like oh remember your second class report card and I'm like oh god
0: but, she gets extra points for laminating them
1: yeah well, oh god she She. yeah my mother is a typical Irish mother in that regard um, but if I if, you know all, all joking aside if I look at that the, the trend over the years um, like my my report card in school would have said hard worker but very talkative and easily distracted and <laughs> That would have meant that, you know, I'm in class. I, I think my mother meant uh, gave me a story about when I was in primary school and I was in maths class and I had just stared out the, the window of the classroom and the teacher said to me, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, all my work is done. I'm just looking out the window. And it was kind of like, well, I've done my job, I've done my work and, you know, I'm you know now just looking outside or whatever. But if I look at kind of over the years, why that was probably a challenge for me is... If you look at a good conversation, you need to have two-way flow. Um, I think I, I mentioned to you previously, and I maybe said it here today about active listening and two-way conversation. And uh, I think over the years I've had to really, um, and I'm not perfect still, I've had to really just understand when to sometimes just shut up and to not cut across someone. And again, I'm not trying to cut across someone to be uh, rude or disrespectful. I'm just like I'm really into the conversation. Let let you know I'm really passionate about it. Um, like my, my my father was uh, born in Malta. Um, he was he was an adopted by uh, an Irish family when he was very, very young. But he's a very passionate man. He's all hands and, you know, I don't know if I've got that from him over the years. You know, uh, Italian people, you know, as a subsequent kind of Maltese people are very passionate. And when I speak, sometimes I come across, you know, that's, that's what I'm about. But when you're in front of someone that you've never met or you're in a boardroom or you're talking to someone on the phone and you have limited time, and you just need to get to the end goal, as I mentioned. You need to have a structure, shut up sometimes, listen, Live. leave um, silence, fill the, fill the air. Uh, and I think that's really something I, I've really worked on over the years. Um, and I would have said, it's kind of funny, because my biggest strength is, is my biggest weakness, you know.
2: Hmm.
0: And how did you know what told you you got it wrong in a conversation?
1: Oh, like I've, I've, I I had direct feedback saying, you know, look, just, you, you, you just need to be quiet sometimes. Not, not like in a disrespectful way, but more, you know, you shouldn't be doing all the talking. Um, And like, you know, there's technology out there now that tells you how your sales reps are talking and the flow of the conversation. So as we chat here today, uh, you'll have your speaking bar, my speaking bar and the flow of the conversation. And if it's just me ranting on for at this stage, whatever it is, 40 minutes, who cares no one's going to listen because i need to get the other person's opinion so over the years you really i've really had to focus on just allowing that conversation to flow um and ultimately where i've picked up on things was my grandfather you say uh you know a famous saying about people you say uh they know something about everything but not everything about something and what he meant by that was uh you can chat and chat and chat thinking you won't know everything but the person across the table from you or on the other end of the phone could be an industry expert and you've done all the talking and they couldn't even get their point across. And that's really what I've learned over the years is just to allow the conversation to happen like that, but be very mindful of giving the other person time to speak, get their point across, understand their point, uh, reflect in it. Uh, and, and again, as I said earlier, like sometimes just leaving silence fill the room.
0: Oh, for sure. I talk about it in terms of, um, you know, gaining permission to speak <laughs> and that, that plays out in, in lots of scenarios, right? Where you, you, you're a leader with your direct report. We, or you're a, you're, you know, you are, um, in business development and you're with a prospect. You, you have to build the trust in the first place, um, and, uh, be inviting and the other person has to be, a welcome um, guest in the conversation. So no talking at people, right? Um,
1: it's very interesting because just as you were talking, it kind of came to me like, uh, I suppose one of the things that is also a balancing act is, you know, if someone rings you up and you actually know the answer to the problem, even before they've finished describing the answer to the problem, you kind of tend to like try to get to the solution. But that person hasn't fully got to explaining the problem if I'm making sense here. And it's kind of like, ah, look, we'll just go straight to it because I I, I know what you're looking for. I can help you. And they're like, okay, great. And like you kind of, well, you feel you're helping them because you've just kind of got straight to the solution they were looking for. But maybe they just wanted to ring you, to tell you the problem. And that's it.
0: Well, and and that in itself is, um, so one of the toughest things (laughs) that leaders find on my course is this tendency to want to jump straight to the solution because they've had the experience, they know what to do, um, they've seen something similar. And so um, uh, <laughs> through, through a lot of practice, they learn not to, not to jump to solution um, for that individual. And, and it's really important that they, they can articulate it, uh, you know, and that you're there to help them think through their problem to think through all the different facets of it. Have you, you know, what, what really plays into it? I imagine that's a big part of your conversations.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I've tried to do um, over the years is uh, somewhat like, you know, failing is a great thing because it makes you a better person. And when you fail and, you know, we can talk about, you know, the conversation about founders and startups and obviously lots of them fail as well. But if, if you just look at a, an individual salesperson and if, they're, if they've are if failed, whatever it is, maybe they didn't get the email response they wanted or they they, they they didn't book that meeting or they didn't close that deal or they didn't hit their target or whatever it is, that might be classed as a, and I'm doing air quotes here, so you can't see me, but uh, failure, right? And yeah, there's just loads of solutions for that. And there's loads of books and courses and training and, you know, oh, you could do this better. But ultimately, wouldn't it be great if, you allowed the person that, you know, again, air quotes failed to figure out ways that they can improve themselves. And I go Mm. back to, um, you kind of need to lead, but also allow people to lead themselves and also sometimes be led. Uh, I do not know everything. I don't claim to know everything. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm only 32. Like, God knows, like my grandfather before he passed away, he was a really well experienced man into his 80s. He didn't know everything. So what chances do I know of him when 32? I'm not going to know everything. And, you know, I've always looked at, if you look at the most successful people, what do they do? They hire smart people around them. They surround themselves by people that are smarter than them, that can bring them on, that can challenge them, that can improve them. And I think, you know, in global shares, for example, um, that's exactly what I've done. I don't mind being challenged. I don't mind one of my team coming to me saying, I disagree with you on that. I think there's a better way of doing it. I, I think you have to allow that to happen because you know what? It's not a dictatorship. I don't know everything. I have made mistakes. I will make more mistakes. And I think, you know, rushing to the solution that you think is the best, even if you have experience, is just not always the way to go. I think, I, you know, I think I've done it in the past, because I have time restrictions. Maybe I have so much to get to, you know, I have so much to do and I have so many calls to get done and I have to have run this report and I have, you know, whatever. Maybe then my evening is I have to, uh, you know, put the kids to bed and clean the house or whatever it is, right? That you just sometimes rush to that solution. And I just found over the years, I've, I've looked at even people internally here in Global Shares, they've just transformed. And that's partly done to themselves. It's nothing got to do with me. I've, I've just allowed that to happen. That, my job was to do nothing. I know that sounds kind of stupid, but
0: well, no, no. I mean, I, I I actually disagree with you there. You you made it sounds like you gave them space to figure out what they needed to do, and that is so critical to to them owning it, um, to being held accountable for it. Um, and uh, you know, if if you came up with it, hell, you know, you 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 made it happen. Um, it's yours. Own it, right? It's uh, it's something that you deserve and should be proud of. So. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't undersell that at all. I think um, too often we. Yes, there are times when you have to, and under pressure and in urgent situations, you do need to tell someone what needs doing. Um, but um, it stifles growth to do that all the time, um, and uh, you end up money. <laughs> You become the bottleneck, you become the person they're always dependent on because you they haven't developed the confidence to think something through for themselves and um and yeah, how wonderful to see that they can and they do and and they grow from there,
1: yeah, and I think one of the things uh like you'd always look at these you know you can't see you no, know, but maybe I'll send you on a picture after this of all these books that I read from you know, your your peak performance and extreme ownership and uh, even the sales manager survival guide, which is very, <laughs> very helpful. But a lot of it talks about the difference between managing and leading and, you know, circles of influence versus circles of power. And uh, I like to have circles of influence where everyone can feel like they can influence and have input into a decision rather than uh, I'm the authoritative figure here because I'm classed as the manager and I'm the one with the title. So everything I says goes. That's just not... Reality today in the world is really not.
0: No, not at all. Well, lovely to hear, and uh, and yeah, kudos to you for for holding that space for people. So so vital. Um, it's a, it's a good long term game plan too. Um, so we started at the very beginning, sort of getting into you know the world of founders and and making sure that they've got the right share structure and so on. To me, that's a space that can be highly emotive. Uh, either it's difficult for people to talk about because there's the strong connection between, um, you know, the hard sweat and tears that someone's put into building a business, um, and and then the money side of things, where it's about whether it's money to be able to grow the business or uh, you know, who gets a share of the pie later. I imagine that space is quite, can be quite a tricky place to navigate.
1: I think for for founders and startups and co-founders and even early employees into companies, uh, there's a lot that they need to consider and a lot that they need to think about, such as, uh, I run out of money. My idea isn't good enough. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> actually, just, mm-hmm. I just have a clue what mm-hmm. I'm doing. Uh, or I'm giving up uh, too much of myself to do this. And that can be personally and financially, right? We can touch on the financial piece in a minute. Um, I'm a failure. Uh, if I fail, I'm a failure. Um, and I think like, you know, for, for founders, that's what their their concern is. Like, I, I suppose really early on until they get to that, you know, unicorn status where they've got so much investment and their name is up on Times Square and they've launched their product, like where you get to that kind of, you know, if you remember the uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs with your self-actualization, until you get to those points, there's so much like uncertainty, fear, trepidation. But if you look at pretty much most of the most successful people in the world, they have failed so many times, but they had the bravery to fail. Um, and I think that is amazing. And I think, you know, I've never been a founder in a company. I have worked in, in uh, high growth, as I mentioned, to start high growth companies. I've never been a founder. And I just have so much respect for, for people that take that leap. But there's so many things they need to consider. And we, we'll talk a bit about here, you know, I mentioned earlier about investors. But the fear of failing for your investors, the fear of falling out of love with the company, the fear of having a bad relationship with your investors, and what does that mean? And the fear of giving up too much. So there's just so much that they have to consider at all times. And I think when we, you know, in my job at the moment, when I pick up the phone to to a founder or if I'm speaking to a startup, that's where their head is at. Their head is, you know, contemplating all those different things and they've got so much to do. And then, you know, sometimes they can be, they can feel themselves that they they have their own pressure to just accept the first offer that comes across their table from a VC. Because you know what? Is my deal, or is my idea, I should say, any better that I'll only get one offer? So I'm going to have to take this first offer because I may not get a second. And if I don't take this offer and I fail, then I'm a failure. And I think they're the kind of conversation that I try to get them to step back and say, Hey, okay, you've got to this stage. Where do you want to get to next? Uh, you know, these are what VCs and investors are looking for. And if I always think back to in a sales career, customers that buy, Tend to look at multiple products. Actually, you know, to be honest, with anything apart from maybe the likes of Netflix and Spotify these days, you know, if you're a, if you're going to the shop and you go in to buy a, a drink, you probably go in and you look at all the drinks, don't you? You kind of go, oh, actually, what do I feel like today? And that kind of mentality of having multiple options, if you're a buyer, should be the same if you're a founder. You should evaluate many different VCs because you know what VCs are evaluating many different versions of your idea, potentially. Like obviously, if you have a unique once off idea. Um, great. But I think that two way accountability that I spoke about earlier about analyzing the market, don't be afraid to challenge people because sometimes the fears you have are just in your head and you know, getting your point across and being confident and bullish sometimes about it can really have a, a dramatic impact on, uh, I suppose, your investment, your, the future of your company, the brand of your company. Um, and, you know, if, even if you see in the UK, you now. um, all these really young entrepreneurs that are coming out from the, the you know the, the, the what are they calling it, uh, the gym and luxury wear business, where they're young, mm-hmm. they're hungry, they're passionate, they're driven, they're determined, they're confident, and VCs love that. Um, but it's really tough. It is really, really tough. There's just so many things founders need to consider.
0: Well, I, and I imagine it requires you know in terms of due diligence, it requires you to really know what the strengths of your business to also know where you need more bolstering and therefore what can a VC bring uh, in terms of not just finance, but um, networks and knowledge. And the, the, there's a lot to, to bear in mind. It's, you do have to study it, don't you? You have to study your own business and try and find a way to be impartial. Would you say that's fair?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's, it's definitely very fair. And I think, you know, obviously, when someone has maybe spent 10 years, in some cases, maybe longer, maybe a lot of cases shorter, to construct an idea that literally is just an idea, they are so emotionally attached to it because it's their, it's their baby, they've they've built this idea. And letting go can be tough. And being open to criticism or critiques is tough. And I, I, you know, Again, that even comes when you're when a founder is sitting across from a VC, and they VC has a maybe a, a not so impressive uh, opinion of the idea or the valuation of the company. Right? That tends to be a big selling point. I think uh, my valuation of my company's X, and then they come back and say why. And you need to be able to understand the measurements of your business from a financial point of view, from a process point of view, from a, competi- a competition point of view, from a, a USP point of view, like. What is the unique selling proposition that you're bringing to the market that you think you're, you can do better than everyone else? And have you analyzed the market? And you know, everyone knows about your, your TAMs and your SAMs, your total addressable market. What does the market look like? How are you going to penetrate it? What's your growth? How are you going to, you know, if I invest 5 million, where are you going to invest that? And how how is that going to accelerate your growth? And the people need to understand those things. And um, I think sometimes that can be overlooked, unfortunately, because they have a product and they just need to get from bootstrapping to seed or pre-seed or, you know, they get to series A and series A is a big milestone in this industry. Everybody kind of says, you know, I, I don't know what the status, is, but you know, 80% of startups don't get to series A and of the people that get to series A, there's a huge high percentage of people that just fail and the business just doesn't go anywhere. And that's a massively daunting proposition to understand that. To be honest, you could probably be in the high percentage that fail. Um, but at the same time, like if everyone just lived by the fear of failing, wouldn't we? Wouldn't have anything? I don't think. Like,
0: no. You, well, Elon but- Musk
1: is a great example of that, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, you know, he didn't drive pro- profitability for years, and um, yeah, I think you just have to understand your business, be confident, to be open to critiques. It goes back to what I said earlier, and then I'll, I'll flip it back over to you. But it goes back to earlier what I said about you need to analyze the investors that you're looking to get investment from? And who do you want to come on? And like, are are you looking for mentorship? Or are you looking for just straight cash? Because there's different things and you have to, you know, we, we speak uh, about deal levers. You have to give something to get something. And if you're only looking to get, then, then that's not going to really work for you, is it?
0: And, and what are the downsides of not thinking about the equity side of things or the shares?
1: Oh, like, it's it it's dramatic. So I don't want to sound like i uh, I'm scaremongering. And like if I think back to my days in in cybersecurity, the question was: It only takes one email for you to be be breached. So one email that you click on could cost you millions in your company, right? And there's loads mm-hmm. of so many examples in the public mm-hmm. domain of that happening, right? And that can tend to be scaremongering, and you know people think that it's not. It's reality, right? In that industry. You know, you're only one click away from your business, maybe not being a business anymore. And if I look at kind of how founders need to understand their equity structure, there are so many examples of founders that no longer make anything in their company um, or that where the company went public and they made nothing from it. Because you know what? When they first started out, They didn't understand the equity structure. They didn't give it any time and space. They were so focused on just getting that next round of investment or getting the product live or getting that first sell that they didn't take a step back to go, okay, me and you are two founders. We both own 50% of the business. What happens if I leave? What happens if you leave? How should I be reflected on my company cap table? How do I manage my cap table? Like at the moment, we pretty much deal with people that use Excel spreadsheets to run the equity structure of their business. And that's not like one and two man operations. That is all up to companies that are Series C, E, D, um, and you know they're really going up uh, through the the scales of growth. And there's so many things you need to account for as you grow. Like obviously the equity structure, you you might be giving uh, options to your employees, and how does that help? And and, and obviously you're giving um, shares to 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 staff to help with productivity, help with retention, help with attracting new employees. Pretty much most startups now, I would know, and especially in the cybersecurity space that I've come from, everything every company is giving you equity because it's it's the standard. Like, you know, and it's it's also a way for cash-strapped companies to get on that superstar COO or CFO that they can't afford to really pay that big box to. So they give them equity and say, look, you know, we can pay you X, but we're also gonna give you whatever 10% equity. And again, just understanding all of that. Is so key, and like it's kind of like you need to do that on day one. When you're one on operation, you need to figure out early on, okay, this is where I'm going. And at every, you know, event, so every time you go through maybe an accelerator program, or you're sitting down with your your legal counsel and you're writing up a contract about maybe uh, that first share plan being designed, or you're sitting down with investors to talk about the next round of funding. You need to have the data behind it and you need to understand it. And a lot of the time, people are kind of shooting in the dark, I'll be honest with you. And that can be scary.
0: It is scary, but uh, I just wanted to say this, Jason, me and my co-founder, we're really tight. I don't think, you know, we we can always resolve problems. I'm sure you hear that a lot.
1: Have you ever tried to take, uh, what was the analogy? Um, Like I know, obviously, Mike Tyson says, you know, everyone everyone has a plan to get punched in the face, right? (laughs) And if you think of it, if your business went to X millions, and I'm um, like, no, fingers crossed it does, but you do great work. But all of a sudden, the relationship broke down, and you're talking about significant levels of money, life changing money, uh, money that will transform not just yourself but your family, your like your lifestyle. Friendships will get so strained, and um, I think it, like putting processes in place early on and having difficult conversations shouldn't deter people from doing it because you know what it'll help you in 10 years time or in five years time or in six months time when something complex happens within the startup and you've already kind of thought it through you're like yeah you know understand it like the big the big a big question that I when I when I speak to so CFOs their big things around uh, valuation of the company and how much equity to give up and how people will get diluted and the you know investors coming in and managing those rounds and that's their challenge for HR professionals it's I want my employees to stay here longer. I want them to feel more valued. So we're, that's why we're issuing, um, you know, the, 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 the options. Um, but how I manage that if someone leaves? What happens if someone leaves? How are you going to manage that on an Excel spreadsheet? You, you just can't. Also, if you're giving employees employee ownership, which is what, you know, Globishers are all about. And, and, you know, thankfully in, in Globishers we eat our own bread. Like we are all shareholders in here and that's really big because i feel my my work is valued and i can actually go into a platform and see that i can see exactly where i you know my value is at with my my shares and all that if i have an excel spreadsheet or if someone's managing it elsewhere it's not visualizing it for me and maybe that means i'm not as deta- as attached as i should be so i think again that that that's what we're trying to do here we're trying to piece all these puzzles together to bring the founder to have more clarity on their structure, bring the employees to have more visibility into the value that they have within the company, bring the investors in so that they can feel I'm involved in all the rounds of funding. If I'm a respective investor, or maybe I'm going for a secondary uh, secondary round, how will I be affected? What's the, uh, you know, the conversation? If I'm a law firm, I'm involved in that process because I'm a key partner, I'm designing and negotiating on behalf of my clients and how do I bring all that together? And that's really what we're trying to achieve. And we do that... As I said, we have companies that come to, to the website, and they have nothing yet. They, they've just like I got an idea, but I'm not sure how to, you know, go for that first round of funding, or how do I get a share plan design, or what should I be? What, what kind of questions should I even ask? All the well, way up exactly. to those big, 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 big companies. You know,
0: I imagine it gives structure to something that feels quite daunting. As never mind, you know, the emotional attachment to some ideas that I have about how much I should own, how much my co-founder should have, how much I should give up. I mean, it's a very emotionally charged space. If you really haven't given it any thought, it's hard to know where to begin. So I imagine something like that really takes away some of the the sort of effort in knowing where to start and how to work through a conversation.
1: Yeah, and absolutely. And I think the minds and if I if I put myself into the founder's shoes here, and I'm having this conversation with with someone, I'm basically talking about how am I going to give up what I already own for people mm-hmm. I don't even know yet? Because basically, what I'm saying is, I need to grow this business. I I I need to take on investment, so I need to again go back to my deal levers. I need to give to get. So am I giving equity, uh, or am I taking on debt? Or am I just taking in cash? There's so many different ways, and talk about convertible debt and all that kind of thing. Um, versus, uh, you know, I need to put 10% of the uh, company equity side for uh, prospective employees or that, you know, that hotshot CFO I want. So ultimately, at all times early on, you're thinking about how can I best dilute myself? You're never going to hold 100% of your company. Like I, I I don't know if there's an example out there of that. I'm open I'm the correction. But I think, you know, if you're still owning um, single digits or high single digits or low double digits, very far down the line of your company, that's an extreme achievement. Like, Fifty uh, percent, you're not going on fifty percent. Uh, if you grow the way you want to grow, it's just not it's just not feasible. How do you do that, like, without giving something? Because everyone wants to a slice of the pie, and it, you want everyone to feel accountable for that. Uh, we'll call it pie, right? You know, they need to feel they have skin in the game, and you need mm-hmm. to give them that skin, and that's that's tough. It is it's very very tough. But I suppose the thing we're trying to educate and bring to the ecosystem is be aware of that on day one, and on day one. Just understand, this is what might come down the line. These are the questions I need to ask myself now. And these are the questions I need need to have the answers to now. Don't wait until like, I had an example where a marketing lead came through the website for us and it was a company, it was a Friday night. I always remember this was just before Christmas, a Friday night. And the lead came in, I picked it up, right? And and I rang the guy and he was like, yeah, I, I really want to look at your scenario modeling tool, which is all about, you know, taking on investment. And I said, yeah, I said, look, we you know, happy to jump on a call now and stay on here and have a chat. But if you want, like I'm conscious, it's 10 o'clock on a Friday night. Do you want to do a call Monday? And he said, no, 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 I have the investor meeting in the morning and I, I really want to get my head around it. And I'm like, <laughs> you're like, prob- I, I, I was flabbergasted. I'm like, holy mother of God, like you, you are in no, like you should be talking about this and doing this analysis months, if not years in advance. Ev- like obviously maybe not years is a bit dramatic, but you know, just so much in advance rather than 24 hours beforehand. And that's sometimes the challenge I think you mentioned it earlier, They only think about it when they need to think about it. And at that Mm -hmm. stage, it's already too late.
0: Well, quite. And and there's value, isn't there, as you've spoken to earlier. There's value in asking the tough questions now at the beginning, um, because there's going to be many more tough questions that you don't have the answer to. But at least, you know, the process of having worked this through will tell you so much about each other as to you know whether this is even going to fly long term right uh, if you can't work out those tough things then um then you're you're in potentially um, going to have a harder time later on and
1: I think th- yeah and I, I totally agree with you and I think the other way to look at it is it's also a negotiating tactic you've already preempted the questions that you're going to be asked and VCS will love that I- investors will look at you and go, you're so credible, like you really taught this through, you understand your business and also our business. So our business is, is obviously investing in companies. And it just gives you the ability to negotiate better earlier. And, you know, one of the things I've taken from working in startups, the key to, you know, obviously growing to these unicorn status and stuff is being really good at negotiating as early as possible. So why would you fly into a meeting having done no prep, not really understanding every asset of the the conversation? Again, back to this whole thing today, having better conversations. That's what we try to allow founders and startups to do. And not just them, but also like we work with VCs and, and law firms and they're, they're key allies to us as well. because they, they are also advocates of the ecosystem. So I think we're just trying to enable all of them to have better conversations as well.
0: Well, and I think that leaves uh, brings us to a fabulous place to wrap things up, actually, Jason. <laughs> and I didn't even practice
1: that. I was like, whoa, that's a nice little full, we've come full circle there.
0: Uh, no, fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been a, been a brilliant conversation. What would be your last thing to leave listeners with in terms of conversations? What would your advice be?
1: I, I think just like we're all we're all probably at home I think anyone that's listened to this um, if they haven't jumped off already, because of my Irish accent which I hope they haven't um, I, doubt it. I, I yeah, hopefully not um, I, I think you know we're all going through a tough time um, there's a lot of uncertainty um, but I would just say don't be afraid to pick up the phone and just talk to someone um, and I don't mean that like from a kind of mental health issues obviously but even just if you've got concerns anything you're unsure of something don't write an email pick up the phone have a chat with someone have a conversation and and you know, I, a famous man said, "You're only one good conversation away from changing your life." That's that's what I try to live by every day.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much, Jason. I really loved this.
1: Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Better Conversations with me, Siham Cyrene. And if you did. Leaving me a lovely review and rating on Apple Podcast will help me reach more listeners who want to have better conversations at work and in their private lives. You can check out show notes at betterconversations.co forward slash podcast. If you're a regular subscriber, brilliant, lovely to have you back. And if this is your first time, hit subscribe, leave a review and tell a friend. A screenshot and an Instagram story would be going above and beyond. And I would be very grateful. Please tag me at Siham all one word, S-E-H-A-A-M-C-Y-R-E-N-E. And of course, I'll tag you right back. So what would you like to hear my future guests and I talk about? or perhaps you would like to be my guest because you've got a strong point of view that you'd like to share or kick about with me on the podcast. Drop me a note, podcast at betterconversations.co. I'd love to hear from you. And if you are a leader who knows you could achieve so much more in your career and be way more influential by having better conversations and stronger relationships, then do consider enrolling for my 12-week online course, Leaders. Who coach. You'll find the curriculum, videos and a whole load more at today. Thanks for listening. I'm Siham Sirene and this has been a better conversation.